We're in James chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. We're picking up some speed now, okay? Chadrach was just asking me if we're going to finish before the end of the year. We're going to finish. And if we don't, you're going to get over it. So it's going to be okay. I'm teasing. Okay, we're in James 3. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you, Lord, expectant, desperate. Lord, we need to hear your voice this morning. We've encountered your glory. We ask that you continue to minister to us. Lord, as we see you, as we know you, we ask that you would make us more like Jesus. Come on, church, I want you to say that this morning. Make me like Jesus. We want to be more like you, Jesus. In your holy name we pray. And all the saints say amen. Amen. As I was preparing this week, I was reading a portion of Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on Romans, which is a classic, and uh, you should you should have it. It's a set, big, fat set. Um, and he said there was a moment as he was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones that he said chills ran down his spine and his hair stood up. Now, that it's not something Sinclair Ferguson would normally say, so my ears perked up to listen. And he was talking about Romans chapter 3, verse 19, where... Paul says, Paul says this, now that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may become accountable to God. Romans 3 is obviously making a case for the, um, for the fall of man, the depravity of mankind, that no one stands righteous before God. The classic Romans 3 verses 3.23, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so here, Paul writes that the law of God, the holy standard of God, it causes every man and woman to recognize that we are wicked, that none of us stand before the Father and declare our own goodness or our own worth. Because of the purity of the law and the high standard of the law, all we can do is stand before God and shut up. And so Lloyd-Jones wrote this. Paul now points out that when you realize what the law is truly saying to you, the result is that every mouth shall be stopped. You are rendered speechless. Listen to this closely, church. I want you to hear me today. You are not a Christian unless you have been made speechless. How do you know whether you're a Christian or not? It is that you stop talking. The trouble with a non-Christian is that he goes on talking. How do you know whether a man is a Christian? The answer is this, that his mouth is shut. Lloyd Jones says, I like the forthrightness of the gospel. People need to have their mouths shut, stopped. You do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut, is stopped, and you are speechless and have nothing to say. So Sinclair Ferguson adds, there is a something almost indefinable about the person who has clearly been converted to Christ Lloyd-Jones puts his finger on it, the essence of it. It's the humbling of the proud, self-sufficient heart, the breaking of our native arrogance, our native arrogance, that we all from Eden on, from the fall on, have a native arrogance. Our tongues are so often, listen closely, the most obvious index of that ungodly drive at the center of our being. So at the center of our being, there's a native arrogance, a native pride, a native self-righteousness, a native self-centeredness, 
and our tongue becomes the index by which we can tell whether or not that arrogance, that pride, that self-centeredness has really been crushed or not. You guys catching the line of thought? Why do we boast? Why is it natural for humanity to, in arrogance and in pride, talk a lot about how great we are? Why do we boast? Because we have a lust for praise. We have a lust to be worshipped. We we dream of being the center of attention. Why do we slander other people? Why do we why do we gossip? Because in our hearts we enjoy tearing down others so that we feel tall. Why do we critique and pick apart? We like to pick apart other people's actions because in doing so, we're showing others by telling you why I think so-and-so is dumb for doing this. I'm telling you that I'm smarter than them. I know better than them. I see more than they can see. They are ignorant. I am wise. But the Christian has been crushed. But the Christian has seen in the law of God perfection and all we can do is stop talking the the christian cannot live in this kind of judgmental arrogance because we recognize that we're not the judge now this is not to say listen to me closely i am not saying that as christians in the 21st century we should not be speaking about righteous matters to our culture No, when we speak about righteousness to society, all we're doing is declaring the truthfulness, the holiness of the law, right? And so when we call our society to not murder, I'm echoing the holiness of the law. When I say to society, marriage is holy and should be upheld with the utmost rigor and discipline, I'm declaring the holiness of the law. It's not to say that we should never speak at all the, the law tells us, it, it forces us to never speak about our own righteousness. It breaks the pride of a man. And if you've never been broken in the presence of God, if you've never really been, if your arrogance has never been crushed, if you think the world should swivel around you, it, it may be that you've never really become a Christian. Because the index the telltale of whether or not you have seen the holiness of Christ Jesus, whether or not you have seen that the cross of Christ, the gruesome blood that poured down that tree was because of my wickedness, right? When I recognized that the bloodshed of the most holy man was because of me, how dare I boast? What do I have to boast of? The saint has been humbled, the saint has been crushed, and the saint therefore shuts his mouth. And James is going to argue a very similar line of thought today. And and so much of what we've learned from James so far is that James is is a practical man. And James cares about holiness. And the real theme that we're going to beat at today, that I'm going to scream and shout and jump up and down and try to make us understand today is this. James demands of us that we live our lives consecrated to God. James says Christianity is about consecration. Do you understand what I mean about consecration? Being devoted, dedicated, set apart. The word holiness, again, we are to, 
God says to, to Israel and Peter echoes to the church, you are to be holy as I am holy. Holiness means separate, not like the rest, not common, dedicated. Paul says to Timothy, there are some vessels in the house that are dedicated for holy purposes. Be sanctified. Christians are consecrated. You are not to live your life like everyone else. That's the large theme of the book of James. Let's start in chapter 3. I'll try to make it a little more lighthearted. Or I may just step on you. Okay, we'll see how this goes. Verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a very small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire, listen to this, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? And can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, let's review just for a moment so we can kind of get our hands around the larger context of the epistle. We ended chapter 2 with James telling us that Christianity is not lawlessness. Remember uh, Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in sin? James is arguing the same argument. James says, if a poor man comes to you hungry and cold, and you say to that poor man, be blessed, be filled, be warm, and you don't actually care for his needs by getting off your butt and cooking a meal, by sacrificing and giving him clothes, James says, then your faith is worthless. And in the same way, if you call yourself a Christian, if you say, I'm a person of faith, but you live like hell, you have the faith of demons. Remember, that was James's line of logic. You cannot pray, God, let your kingdom come and your will be done while you actively live in disobedience. You can't pray for heaven and live like hell. So James is arguing for a type of consecration. He is arguing that Jesus bought you with a price. He purchased you. You belong to him. To be a Christian, to have saving faith, is to be possessed by, gripped in the inner man by a new a new will, a new desire, a new heart. 
Saving faith is a power that transforms a man or woman. And so he's argued thus far that you can't be a Christian and not care about the poor. You can't be a a Christian and not serve because Christians that are saved by faith are gripped by faith and live all of their lives expressing love by faith. And if you claim to have faith and you don't care about anybody but yourself, you don't have it. It's James's argument. So now he's turning from the same line of logic and he's arguing this. If you are people of faith, shut your mouths. If you are people of faith, you are required to tame the tongue. People of faith must recognize that the tongue is the most deceitful of all of our members. And we are called, commanded of Scripture to spend our lives taming our tongues, guarding our lips, devoting these lips to declare the gospel and not to tear down and slander and gossip and boast. This mouth must belong to God. This mouth must pour forth pure water, clean water. Now he's arguing again, I think he has in mind, we talked about this last week, he seems to have in mind Jesus' teaching in Matthew 12, it shows up in the other synoptic gospels, but where Jesus says this, either make the tree good and its fruit, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Your words will tell the story of whether or not you belong to Christ or whether or not you belong to hell. By your speech, by your words. James thought, Again, is clearly in line with the teaching of Jesus. We are called to be good trees. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we're called to deal with what's going on in here. The arrogance, the pride, the self-righteousness. I've got to deal with the bitterness in here. So that what springs forth out of my lips is good fruit. Remembering again that my words will tell the story, will justify or condemn concerning what kind of life I lived. Now, with a little bit of context under our belts, let's work for a minute to follow James's reasoning here. First, he says, not many of you should desire to become teachers. I think this is worth pondering. We don't talk about this much. The teacher in James's day, um, one, we've said this before, they didn't have a plethora of scripture. There was no such thing as the printing press. And so a, a church may have a single copy of an epistle. Um, everyone didn't have the Bible on their coffee table. And if they hit, did have the Bible on their coffee table, the literacy rates were so incredibly low that they couldn't read it anyway. And so when you don't have access to scriptures and you can't read, the person reading you the Bible, especially if they are gifted in explaining to you the Bible, becomes incredibly precious to you, right? So the teacher is especially honored because for us, you can all read the Bible yourself. And so you don't need me to read it to you in the morning. But the church community needed the teacher. And so the the teacher had an especially honored position. Now, I think this is good and right for several reasons. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17, 
let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. In other words, make sure you show double honor to the elders in the church who rule well because they have great responsibility. And then he says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so Paul and James are both acknowledging that the role of teaching has a great requirement, a responsibility upon it. Think that preachers and teachers oftentimes live under a, a great measure of spiritual warfare. There's a, there's a great measure of demonic attack that's involved with the gift of teaching. And so Paul's teaching the church, don't pick apart your teachers. Don't spit on the man teaching. Don't, don't follow him around with all of your complaints. They've got enough problems. I'm arguing for myself now. You see what I'm doing? Um, it's beautiful, right? But, but, but very much so, that is what Paul's arguing. Like, recognize that your teachers have a lot of responsibility, a lot of warfare. They're diligently giving themselves to the word to try to feed you. Don't nitpick them. Don't pick them apart. Show them double honor. Okay, but what we're learning from Paul and from James is that the role of teaching, the role of preaching, is a, is a high call with great responsibility. And the Bible says that teachers and preachers will be judged with greater strictness. What does that mean? That Caleb has to live what Caleb preaches. God doesn't do the thing where like, do as I say, not as I do. That doesn't work for God. Like if I stand here with conviction and call you today to shut your mouth, I better live with a shut mouth. And if I don't, I will be judged with a greater measure of strictness for doing so. So James is arguing here as well that, that are, that again, within thought, that out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak. If I have bitterness in my heart towards an elder or bitterness in my heart towards another church or bitterness towards my spouse, I have this microphone for too long. It's going to fall out of my lips sooner or later. And so the preacher or teacher, because it's required of me to talk a lot, it is also equally required of me to submit myself to sanctification, to be purified, because the more, this is the principle, listen to the principle, the more we do this, the more falls out of our hearts. And sometimes it's wise to just stop talking because there are things in our hearts that we still need to be, that still need to be shaken out before God. There are times where a brother or sister, and I'm talking principle now, where a brother or sister in the faith maybe offends you. You guys know we live life together. We offend each other from time to time. Not, not willfully, sometimes willfully. Some of you guys are just mean. Um, I'm teasing. Kind of. Um, <laughs> I really am kidding. Um, we, we, we offend each other from time to time. And, and that's okay. When you get in a room and, and say, I'm looking, say, say Taylor Ferguson is the most holy person in the room, okay? Say Taylor offended me. Um, if we get in the room and someone says, um, did you see what Taylor was wearing today? Um, if, if I haven't processed the bitterness in my heart, I'm going to spill right? I'm going to leak. And what James just called, what James said comes from the mouth is a restless what? Evil. A restless evil and a deadly poison. And so we walk around every day with hearts that carry bitterness and hardship and trial. And we need to recognize that if we don't deal with this, we are going to spill out poison. And so sometimes it's wise just to shut your mouth just to stop talking. Are we okay with that so far? 
So James says, don't desire to be a teacher because desiring to be a teacher comes with great responsibility. You've got to talk a lot and you're going to, uh, teachers are going to be judged strictly for the things they say, the things they do. Now from there, he turns and he tells the church, all of you, and this includes us, all of you have a responsibility to tame the tongue. This is a Christian duty. This is, this is a part of Christian culture. This is Christianity 101. We are not gossips. We are not slanderers. We do not boast. We're, we don't, we don't, we don't posture ourselves up as the, the ultimate righteous ones. Why? Because we've been crushed by the cross of Christ. He says, mankind, this is actually interesting argumentation. Mankind can tame reptiles and sea creatures but the tongue is a whole nother issue. And he does have in mind the idea of, oh, I don't know, my kids were watching a dolphin movie this week and the dolphin's like, you know, doing the flips and the tricks. And then the dolphin died and they're all crying. And um, I'm like, he didn't really die. It's just pretend. <laughs> Bede, a seventh century commentator, he said, this is interesting. Bede said, we read in Pliny of how a household managed to tame an immense ass or snake so that the snake emerged each day from its hole and brought the day's food to the man's table. And so Bede says, we've all heard the story of a house that they tamed a snake to bring them food each morning. He said, we also read of a domesticated tiger, which was sent to the emperor Anastasius from India. So he said, we've also all read this story of a tiger that was tamed and taught to, to travel for miles to come to an emperor. He said, and then Bede says this, the Bible calls all of that child's play compared to the art of taming the tongue. So the 7th century commentator says, you think of the work, I don't know if I've probably told you guys this before, but I'm pretty sure that our dog is demon-possessed. Um, that, that dog is bad, okay? Um, the work that it takes to teach that dog to sit, to not buck out the front door every time it's open. Like, you, you, you taking your dog to training, you know, to puppy training? They're really training you. I don't know if you know that. They're not training the puppy. They're training you. Um, you take your dog to puppy training, and there's treats, and there's all this discipline. And you guys know if you don't, like, keep up with it, the dog's going to get buck wild. You've gotta, you can't just go to training for two weeks and then be done. I've tried that. It doesn't work. You have to keep doing the things they tell you to do. And, and James is saying here, feeds commenting, you, you could teach the dog to sit, to roll over, to stay, to that discipline that it requires to teach the dog, that's child's play. What we're called to is much, much, much heavier. The responsibility, the discipline, the intentionality that it's going to take to tame your tongue is heavy. This is the project of the Christian, the job of the Christian, not to tame wild beasts, but to tame your speech, to guard your tongue. Again, he calls the tongue a restless evil full of poison. Every This is the problem with bitterness too. You know, you've who was I talking to? I was talking to one of my kids and they had their feelings hurt by a friend and they were saying, I was saying, you know, we got to forgive, baby, we got to forgive. And they were saying, I've forgiven dad, but it's like, it just keeps coming back up. And it's like two weeks later and they do something and it reminds me of, and we all live that way, right? You've got, you've got to forgive. That's a Christian command. But if forgiveness was just get to the altar one time and say the prayer, man, we'd be in good shape. 
The problem is that when we forgive, then we see the people again. And sometimes they do dumb stuff again. And it, and it triggers. It re-brings up these kind of issues. And so when the Bible calls the tongue a restless evil, it's because even in forgiveness, which we are called to and which we are going to practice for the rest of your life, you're going to have to be disciplined to stop talking about it. Right? The telltale of whether or not you've forgiven someone is whether or not you feel the need to keep talking about it. At some point in forgiveness, you have to stop. And then James says this. Anyone who has tamed the tongue is a perfect man. But he just told us in in, uh, the verse before, we should not uh, eagerly desire, we should all want to become teachers because we all stumble in many ways. So it's part of James's theology that there's no such thing as perfection in this life, that all stumble. James the Apostle says we all stumble. We all struggle with sin in the flesh for the rest of our lives. He says anyone can tame the tongue, he's a perfect man. And he's arguing that person does not exist outside of Jesus who stands alone. None of us are perfect. We all stumble. He's arguing that the tongue is a restless evil. You never you never finish the Christian work of shutting your mouth. You have to practice this discipline for the rest of your Christian life. It's required of you. You don't get to take a week off. You don't get to take a take the night off when you're with the right group of friends. Y'all hear me? You dang sure don't get to take the night off because you had too many glasses of wine sitting at the table. Let's just do it. We're here. You are required. You are required to tame that tongue. Now, this week, I was, um, it's easy for me to talk about Haley's sin. That's a little easier than mine. Um, Haley, she wouldn't mind me sharing. Um, Haley had a conversation. Someone called Haley to ask for advice. And she said, when she got off the phone, she realized, she said, I don't know if I helped. I think I might have spurred her, another person on in unforgiveness. And so, She's telling me this, and then she's calling back, right, to apologize and to repent. And that's one of the beautiful things about Haley. She's quick to repent. And James is advocating for that. Recognize that you've got to fight with your tongue for the rest of your life, and you're not always going to win. Therefore, you have to be quick to repent. That's a part of being a Christian as well, is acknowledging that you're not perfect, that Jesus alone is glorious. You've got to be quick to say, to call back and say, I shouldn't have said that. Forgive me. I need to repent before God. I, what I just did was not right. If, if we're unwilling to repent, we might have a great issue. So he gives us several analogies. Let's just pick them up quickly and we'll, we'll roll through this. He says, the tongue is like a bit in the, in the mouth of a horse. Now, in James's day, they didn't have horsepower, right? They didn't have big trucks and cars. If you needed to pull something, a horse was a pretty good option, okay? So a horse was one of the greatest expressions of power for, like, all of history. You're saying a horse is a, is a powerful beast. It's the most powerful beast we got. But we can control it. We can control We can steer its direction with just this tiny bit in its mouth. Then he says a ship. They're, they're big, right? No one, no one builds a, a ship with hopes of sinking, okay? That would be dumb. You... You build the thing with intentionality. You think it through big sails. And then he says, and, and then even this, this big, massive, strong ship, it's driven by mighty wind, powerful wind. But the direction, 
the direction is controlled by a little rudder. He's saying, this is, this is the argumentation he's making. You could be strong. You could, I, th- I think this is really the line of thought he's trying to make us think through. You could memorize the entirety of the New Testament. You could, you could, you could pray morning to evening and, and view yourself as the most spiritually disciplined person. You could be strong as a horse. But if you are a gossip, that tongue will dictate the entire direction of your life. No one wants you to be their pastor. Your children, you can be, you can know the Bible backwards and forwards. But if all you do is tear your kids down, your kids still aren't going to like you. No one cares how strong you are or how prayed up you are if all you do is gossip and slander and belittle. The tongue becomes a key to your future, to your destiny. And he's talking about a ship. Ships are strong. And in the same sense, you can be disciplined in every area of your life. You can be, you can spend your whole life studying uh, medical sciences because you want to go and be a doctor and serve the sick and care for the, the broken, those who can't afford. But if you turn around and gossip about every patient you have, sooner or later that's getting out. And I sure don't want to come into your room and take my clothes off. You go and tell everybody how fat I am. Okay? Do you kind of fo- follow the logic? You can be strong and disciplined and, and, and excellent, but your tongue will dictate how far that excellence takes you and where it takes you. Then he says the tongue is just a small little flame, but it can set a whole forest on fire. One, one gossip can tear a church apart. The, the, the tongue can destroy a marriage, absolutely destroy a marriage. You, husbands and wives, hear me. You should not, you should not be in the habit of slandering your spouse to other people. You should be your spouse's greatest defender. Great, you're in their corner from start to finish. That doesn't mean you always think they're right, but when you think they're wrong, you take that up with them in private, right? And when you leave that bedroom and you've had that conversation, you are on the same team forever. The tongue will make or break your marriage. Now, I feel the need to, to take this rabbit trail for just four minutes, okay? Give me four minutes. The Bible teaches that the tongue is incredibly impactful for your destiny, that the tongue has the ability to build up or tear down. And so here, James is very much in line with what Proverbs teaches. Again, James is wisdom literature. James is leaning on Proverbs quite a bit when Proverbs teaches that the power of life and death is in the tongue. Now, we need to just take 30 seconds, a minute and a half, to discuss the fact that this does not mean that you have the ability to create things with your words. That's actually new age. Okay, that's not Christian. Christians have never taught that you can make things with your speech. One of the, the defining traits of Yahweh, of God, is that God speaks and creates. Humanity does not have the ability. I can say, let there be light until I'm blue in the face, but unless I get my butt out of the bed and flip the light switch, nothing's happening. Okay, and so one of the new age things that's kind of bled into Christianity is that we feel the need to try to speak into existence um, our, 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 our blessing. Speak in, if I sp- and then you say to each other, like, you know, I got a snotty nosed kid. And I say, man, we got the we got the coal going through our house. And you say, don't claim that. I'm like. It's factually true. <laughs> Do you see the snot? 
You want me to ignore the snot too? I, mean, I don't know what you want me to do. Am I, am I allowed to use NyQuil or like we just pretending like this didn't happen? Um, that, that, guys, with all of the honesty and grace in my heart, that is dumb and not Christian. Never Speaking things into existence has always been, God creates ex nihilo. That's a, that's a Latin phrase that means out of nothing. That's a unique ability for God to speak things into existence out of nothing. That's not, the Bible does not have in mind here that we all walk around and rebuke each other for claiming that you have a headache. Your head hurts or it doesn't, okay? Saying that it hurts didn't do anything. Just acknowledging the fact. What the Bible has in mind is that your words have the ability to encourage or to destroy, to, to build up unity or to create division. And so the Bible is saying that your words have a certain power in them. I was uh, talking to some friends this week about, I have one kid in particular, don't try to figure out which one. I have one kid that's really struggling with insecurity. And so we're talking to some friends about, okay, how do we affirm? Where do we encourage? How do we build this child up who is really struggling with feeling secure in who they are? And so I'm, I'm riding in the car and talking about, okay, God is a good father who loves you. You are beautiful. He created you with a desk, right? I'm, I'm using my words to pour into a child confidence and faith. I'm using the power of my words to build her up. In the same sense, you can destroy your kids with your words. Your words do have the ability to destroy your spouse, to belittle your spouse. So the Bible is teaching that your words can build up or destroy. It is not teaching that your words can can make sick or unmake sick on the basis of your words. Now, again, the Bible at times, Peter says to a sick man, get up and walk. That what that means is that Peter is operating in what we call the gift of faith and is speaking on behalf of God in that moment. It's very different than just walking around saying to people, I'm not sick. I'm not sick. That's just dumb. So, so there are moments in the Christian life where God, and through the Spirit, deposits faith, and we feel the Spirit saying just to say to someone, get up and walk. And that's a beautiful expression of the power of the Holy Spirit. Not of the power of your lips. Your lips don't carry that kind of power. That's a unique attribute of God. You guys okay with me so far? We can have that argument later. I will win, okay? I've thought this through a time or two. So from here, he's saying to us, your words can build up, your words can tear down, your words can steer the direction of your future. Be as strong as you want to be, but if you're a gossip and you don't know how to close your mouth, you ain't going anywhere. Nobody trusts you. You have no influence. You can study the scriptures till you're blue in the face and stand to preach the gospel with all of your intellect. But if you have been a gossip for your entirety life, nobody wants to hear what you have to say. The consistency of your character bears weight on the effectiveness of your gospel presentation. This is really what we're getting at. James is saying, consecrate your lips to proclaim the truth of this word and people will listen. But if you run your mouth and you spill forth bitterness day in and day out, and there's, there's salt water spilling forth from the spring of your heart, no one's coming to you to drink. Do you catch that argument? When I'm weary and when I'm tired and when I need encouragement, I'm not coming to the gossip to lift me up. God cannot, will not use you 
to spur on the next generation, to love Jesus, to preach the gospel, to live holy. God will not use you to impart to the next generation great faith and courage if all you do is slander and tear down. You must get disciplined here. If we had to draw out on a piece of paper, and maybe we should, the themes of James's epistle, what are the things that James cares about? Okay, we've talked a lot about the poor. James clearly cares about the poor. James cares about double-mindedness and faith. Remember, we did that. And then one of the things that James wants Christians to do, one of the things he's constantly going to bring up, is the tongue. This is one of James's core pieces of Christian holiness. Fundamental to what James believes about Christian holiness is what you do with your mouth. And then he returns again to the imagery of being double-minded. He's saying, again, you can't spill forth salt water all day, expect people to come drink. You can't produce, you can't produce grapes and expect people to come to you for pears. Like you produce what you produce. And, and when you fail, when you stumble and spill forth bitterness, which you will from time to time, you better repent. Own up and acknowledge it and get back on your feet and shut your mouth again. Be disciplined with what you speak. Now, I've got more notes, but I can't imagine what they say. I feel like I said it all. So before we close, I, I want to I want to just lobby at us. Just and when we're talking about discipleship, okay? We're talking about being Christians, right? We're not talking about cultural Christianity. Nobody's here just to show up on Sunday and then to go have chicken and go home and pretend like nothing happened. Like for us, we're talking about discipleship, right? Agreed? You with me there? We're going to be real Christians. We're going to do this. For us, James says it is fundamental, it is foundational that we consecrate our mouths to the proclamation of the gospel, to encouraging and building up. Sue's taught us a hundred times that the word encouragement in the New Testament means to put courage in. We are called to put courage in the next generation, not discourage or remove courage from. We are going to have to get, get serious about what flows from our mouths. Will you consecrate your mouths to the gospel or not? Will you consecrate your lips to the beauty of Jesus, to the proclamation of his goodness? Or will your mouth be used to build yourself up and to declare your own righteousness? Because the law commands of you to shut your mouth. Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet? We're going to pray. Worship team, y'all come. This morning, Lord, we want to hear the command of Scripture. Come on, I want you to pray with me. God, use these lips. Use my mouth, God, to declare the gospel. May my words be few. May my words be sharp and pointed and, and anointed by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we're asking in Jesus' name that our children come to us to drink. Our children, when they're tired and weary, they come to us for encouragement and strength, that we're able to give them scripture and give them courage. We're asking that when we stand to minister to our coworkers, when we speak up, Lord, that there would be a consistency in our character 
that accelerates the effectiveness of our gospel presentations. Do it in us, God. We are here to live consecrated to Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Before anything else, before any other agenda, before any other priority, we belong to Jesus. Consecrate us, Lord. We give you our lives. In Jesus' most holy name, all the saints say amen. Amen. Altar team, why don't you?